the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to The Big Silence Podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go. Mental health is my wealth. The stress upon the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seek and ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Mina B. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Um, I literally just came back from working out with a trainer. I am a personal trainer, but I have a trainer, so I'm like sweaty and rushing over here. So I'm good. And you're coming to us from New York. Yes, I am. How is it over there? It's good. I'm actually surprised that we still have some summer weather, Mm -hmm. and I am trying to enjoy that before fall comes and... Just takes away all the joy of summer from me. So (laughs) that's how it is over here. (laughs) Yeah. My husband's from New York, so I totally get it. Uh, So I came across your Instagram profile through your work in mental health. And I really love everything that you're doing. And you're a psychotherapist, wellness coach, licensed master social worker, and mental health educator and consultant. So I'm going to dive into later the two things that I mentioned I want to talk to you about, which is burnout. Because literally, with the past few years with everyone, the burnout is real. And maybe the psychology behind that and also mental health in the workplace. But before we go into that, I just wanted you to share with the audience a little bit about you and how you got into this work? So I got into this work primarily from my own experiences dealing with mental health. I grew up struggling with depression and anxiety. However, as a child, I did not know that the symptoms I was experiencing were symptomatic of depression and anxiety. And it wasn't until I started my grad program that I also simultaneously started to see a therapist So at that time, I was learning about human behavior, learning about psychology, learning about the mind and pretty much mental health diagnoses, while also experiencing therapy for the first time. And for me, I felt like that was a very 
very personal experience because I was learning about myself in school, but then I also was learning about myself in the therapist's office, you know? And I think mm-hmm. it was very, mm-hmm. it was a very interesting place to be in. But I also think that probably was a very powerful place for me to be in because not only was I in therapy, like I said, gathering tools and knowledge around my mental health issues, I was also understanding the complexity around trauma and I was understanding childhood development and I was understanding certain things in school that helped me to look at my own life and reflect on some of the things that I experienced and was exposed to that really impacted my mental health. So that's pretty much it. My own personal experience. I've been there. I work primarily, have worked primarily with people who struggle with depression, anxiety, and trauma. And that's highly correlated to my own experiences. Yeah. So growing up, I'm I'm wondering if we were like in the same generation where like nobody talked about mental health when we were younger. So we just had to figure it out ourselves. And a lot of conversations I have, it is the same story where, I mean, even starting the Big Silence Foundation is because of my own experiences and wanting to make sure that others don't have to suffer like that. And so as a teenager, um, what did depression and anxiety feel like or look like? And how did you mentally manage that? Or did, Mm. like, was there an outlet for you to manage it? So my depression as a teenager was actually very severe. I did not manage it well. I had suicidal thoughts and those suicidal thoughts led to me self-harming. So I do have a history as a teenager of cutting Mm -hmm. as a way to cope with my depression and my mental health. And that's pretty much how I dealt with it. I used self-harm as a coping outlet And as you said, I grew up in an era as well where talking about mental health felt taboo. It felt stigmatized. And even in my own cultural upbringing, mental health was always associated with either drug abuse or homelessness. Like that's Mm -hmm. the path. If you engage in drugs, you take drugs, then you are on the path to homelessness. And that's how my family saw mental health. So there really were no conversations around what does it look like to be anxious why are you sad? Why are you depressed? No one really talked about those things. And so I felt like I kind of took it upon myself to deal with it, but I didn't deal with it in a healthy manner. Now, I was o- I was able to overcome that because I got caught through a friend. They noticed the scars on my arm. And that's kind of where everything pivoted for me because it was the first time someone kind of noticed. Clearly, you're not okay. So what are you hiding? Because that's another thing. I was a kid who excelled in school. So I was getting good grades. I was staying behind to be a part of the after-school program. I was the helper. I was the doer. I was the person that everyone kind of looked at as, you're going to succeed. You're going to be great. But no one recognized that I was dealing with so many emotional wounds internally. And I think being seen through that lens of someone recognizing you clearly are not okay, that was the turning point for me to recognize maybe cutting clearly is not the way that I should be going. 
And having a healthy friendship led to me really developing more healthy mechanisms, like being able to journal, like being able to write. When I was in high school as well, after all of this happened, I did go to see my guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. So she was not necessarily a licensed mental health professional, so it wasn't necessarily therapy, but it did feel good having an adult that I felt safe talking to because that also played a role in my depression. I didn't feel like I had safe adults in my life. So having that person that I felt like I could just be free with and just talk about my mental struggles with, that to me played a huge role in my healing. Yeah. Um, I can't wait for you to read my memoir too, because I understand you. This tattoo on my wrist, I got it when I was 18 because uh, there's actually a chapter in my book about cutting. And Mm -hmm. this stands for strength and power. Can you share what was going on at home that maybe led you to feeling depressed or having anxiety or does it mental illness or mental health conditions run in the family? So from my understanding, I would say trauma, Mm -hmm. intergenerational trauma definitely runs in my family. And when you're dealing with trauma, you're dealing with complex personalities, you're dealing with different attitudes, you're dealing also with different belief systems Mm -hmm. because trauma alters how we see the world and how we build healthy relationships. And because I come from parents who struggled with intergenerational trauma, I feel like the relationship that I had specifically with my mother was a little difficult. My mother is one of six and her and my grandmother was one of 13. And so As I got older, I was able to learn more about my mother's upbringing, which helped us heal. But again, I was an adult when this was happening. But as a child, my mother sometimes didn't feel like a safe space. Mm -hmm. Not only was she one of six, she was one of, uh, she's the only girl. So she grew up with five brothers. And then the trauma of her grand, my grandmother and my great-grandmother, that intergenerational trauma there, I think my mother struggled with empathy mm-hmm. and she struggled with creating a nourishing, secure attachment between me and her. So it, it was difficult. I, I would say that my my mother and I, and I think culturally, like my mom is not from this country. She's from Panama. And so she's raising this American daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have two different belief systems. We see the world differently because she sees things through her own cultural lens because of where she was raised and her own upbringing. And I'm being raised here in America and I have my own ideologies and views. And I think we kind of clashed there as well. To the point where there were certain concepts or certain things I wanted to share with her that her emotional reactions were often very cold or very judgmental. And I learned from very young, like, Dad, I can't tell my mom Mm -hmm. certain things because I already know how she's going to react. And that really played a role in my depression, as well as my anxiety, because then it also made me afraid for her to find out some of my truths or certain things. Mm -hmm. I even remember I had a best friend. Well, I have a best friend. We're still friends to this day. But when I was a child, I would actually go to my best friend's mother Mm -hmm. to talk about certain things. And I guess she assumed I was telling my mom things. So she would call my mom up and say, Um, I heard Mina told me X or Mina was talking to me about this thing. And my mom's like, why am I last to know about it? 
Yeah. And then that would bring up conflict between us. But I'm like, you don't, cre- you haven't created a safe space for me to even want to tell you good things. So I definitely think that the tension between my mother and I played a huge role in why I felt very anxious and very depressed. But I will say now as an adult, um, my mother and I have a very, very close relationship now. Mm. And that stems from my own inner work. My mother always refused to go to therapy and mm-hmm. I had to learn to accept that. But I also had to say to myself, well, if she's not going to go to therapy, what can I control? Right. I can only control me. So when I'm in the therapeutic space, what can I share with my therapist as well as my own knowledge around trauma? Because even though I'm a therapist, like when it comes to our own personal lives, sometimes we still need additional insight, which is why therapists go to therapy. And like you I know, said earlier, so, trainers go to trainers. I mean, hey. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we're not perfect. We still need guidance. And through that guidance, I was able to really see my mother through a different lens. Mm-hmm. And it helped me to go back to my mom and ask her more questions around how she was raised, what it was like being a child. And that kind of was very eye-opening for me because I realized, well, my mom's not doing this because she hates me or she doesn't mm-hmm. like me. She's giving me her best. And unfortunately for me, it's not the greatest. But for her, I can probably give her tools and more insight to recognize, well, these are what my needs are as your daughter. And how can we shape our relationship around that? And I think that my own personal experience in therapy and learning to just manage my expectations of her, learning to grieve the mother she cannot be to me, Mm -hmm. and really just accepting her for who she is and the trauma she has dealt with, that has helped reframe how I see her and has made our relationship literally 10 times more healthier. Yeah, I understand that. It was the same for me. The last five years of my mother's life, which before we got on and started filming this podcast, I was sharing with Mina that today is my mother's one-year anniversary of her passing. And, you know, the last five years where I was her caretaker and I thought we were going to have this, like, finally, my this little girl inside of me was like, mommy's home. Like, we're going to have this great relationship But then through my own therapy and my own realization and managing those expectations so that you don't continuously get let down, because that was what was happening. My husband would witness this, and he's like, she always lets you down. Like, you have to realize what she is capable of. And her trauma, she grew up with a schizophrenic father who committed suicide, and she suffered from mental illness her entire life and didn't want to go to therapy. She did a little bit towards the end of her life. But yeah, I think that's such an important thing for anyone listening. Can you talk more about managing expectations? Because I think that's such a healthy tool. It's so healthy, but it's also so hard. Mm -hmm. So I definitely understand other people's perspectives when it's like, I really, especially when it comes to a parent, you know, a parent is supposed to be a safe, secure space for a child. And when you realize you can't get that, and then you're also watching other people get it from their parent, it could be such a blow to our own emotional well-being. And so one of the things that helped me that I always encourage people is really just reframing because it's a lot of mental work that's required to get to this place. Learning to reframe. And what I mean by that is I had to start looking at my mother's strengths Because I was always fixated on what she couldn't do for me. Mm -hmm. And when I realized 
okay, what she can't do for me is her limit. That is where at that point, whatever those things are, whatever those requests are, she can't show up for me in that manner. But to step away from all or nothing thinking and to not look at our relationship through the lens of black and white, I had to start fixating on, well, what exists in the gray area? So although I know she can't be this person, who has she been to me? What are the parts of her that actually make me feel safe? What are the parts of her that when I come to her and I have a need, she actually does show up? I think it's very common in all relationships. We kind of fixate on the flaws of our partners, the flaws of our friends, the flaws our parents have, and it causes us to undermine their strengths. So for me, really being able to manage my expectations was learning to shift and recognize maybe it's not have zero expectations of her, but it's knowing where to put those expectations. So when it comes to talking about, you know, something deeply personal, maybe she's not going to give me the empathetic Mm -hmm. insight I'm looking for. But I know when I need help, when I need someone to do me a favor, I need someone I can lean on. My mother is going to show up for me 100% because she is so selfless. And that is the way I had to really learn to reframe by recognizing, okay, this is where she's failed me. She's failed me numerous times. And so it's not just a mistake. It's a pattern here. It's a habit. This is showing me over and over again. If I'm chronically disappointed by the same thing, it's possible she just can't be that thing to me. But what does it look like if I reshift my thinking and say, but she actually shows up here. And when she shows up, she shows out. And I know when it comes to this thing, she's going to have my back. And that is what helped me personally and what I've I've always guided my clients to really focus on. Because as I said, you know, I think it's really easy to focus on the negatives and mm-hmm. limit a person's ability to care for us by just seeing them through the lens of, well, this is what you can't do. So you're not a good person. Mm-hmm. Versus I recognize you have some limitations. So let me focus on your strengths and let's build intimacy through that. Yeah. I love that. I always talk about expectations, either even in my marriage or in other friendships, but realizing, I mean, none of us are perfect. And I like to go through life and be like, no judgment, as long as you're being a good person. Um, you know, we're only each capable of so much and the time and the season that we're in or the day that we're in, you know. So what about if someone doesn't have a mom— a, like she's not capable of, or a parent, let's just say a parent, doesn't have the capability to show up, period. How do you manage those expectations and take care of yourself? That's, you know, I think that that's where grief comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, mourning a relationship of someone who is still actively present mm-hmm. in our lives. So this is a form of ambiguous loss, we call it. When someone is physically present, but they're psychologically absent. And so you have this living person, this person who clearly is available, but psychologically, they're not available. Psychologically, 
they're not going to care for you the way you want to. Psychologically, they cannot give you good advice. Psychologically, they can't even show up for themselves. And so Mm -hmm. we call this a form of ambiguous loss because grief is not black and white. In many Mm -hmm. ways, it is very ambiguous. And I think being able to mourn that relationship is the first step. I think oftentimes when I'm working with people who struggle with this, there's this pushback and this resistance because it's like, well, if I stick around and if I engage in like delusional optimism and I'm really, really hopeful, they're going to change. They're going to change. And we don't realize we're engaging in self-sabotage because we're now disappointing ourselves because we're clinging to delusional optimism. And what that means is we've created an alternate reality in our head Mm -hmm. and we are living life through that alternate reality instead of facing facts. This person is showing you they cannot be that thing. But in your head, you're like, but, 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 but. And it's very common too for adult children to say and young kids, if I do this, if I fix this part of myself, if I talk this way, if I act this way, and it's so complex, you know? So one of the first things that I think is so important is to just grieve and recognize that ambiguous loss. And when I say grieve, Really just owning and accepting reality for what it is where, say out loud, this parent cannot parent me. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like is learning to reparent yourself and learning to, one, engage in community. Because I think, too, our American society has this, uh, you know, we we have the nuclear family and we believe that that is our tribe and that's who we stick with. And we don't do a really good job at helping people understand community care. And I always tell people, when you have to grieve the loss of a parent through ambiguous loss, someone who is psychologically absent but physically present, who else in your community shows up for you in a parent-like way? I remember, as I shared earlier, when I was young, I would go to my best friend's mother. And that literally till this day, I call her mom. She's my Mm -hmm. second mom too. Mm -hmm. And although I have a healthier relationship with my mother, that does not change the fact that this woman is still like a mom to me. And so I often share with people and I ask them to reflect on community, you know, because we're not wired to be alone. And the parent-child relationship is so vital to our well-being. But when you can't get that, community is so integral to your well-being and your emotional growth. And so who else is a parent figure in your life that's nourishing? They also say there's studies around how when a child is exposed to chronic and complex trauma, literally having one positive role model in their lives can shape the path that they end up going on. Mm -hmm. And that path can be a path of healing and growth versus engaging in intergenerational trauma and reenacting those negative patterns and cycles that we see tend that tends to happen. And that's because there's exposure to positive community and positive people. So those are some of the things that I encourage people to do. And even journal it out, write your thoughts out, write a love letter, write a grieving letter, you mm-hmm. know, and, and really sit with that and own that. And it's probably going to be something you might have to do for a very, very long time. Don't rush the healing process around that either. Yeah, I have um, somebody I've worked with who's coming on the podcast. She's going to be here in Austin in a few weeks. And Gwen Dittmar, I've worked with her for five years. and. Um, she helped me to um, with reparentification, and it was a journal where I would write a letter to little Karina, write a letter to big grown-up Karina, write a letter to my mother, 
whatever, just put it all out there. And so it's really, that's an exercise for anyone listening to that really helped me is the journaling and then taking, like, being a parent to yourself and raising, like, thinking about how you want to treat yourself as that little girl and just being kind to self. Absolutely. And I think going back to, like, what you said, going back to our childhood selves, when we do that, we can remind ourselves that, oh, I am capable. Mm-hmm. I am capable of nourishing myself. I am capable of loving myself. I am capable of caring for myself and giving myself what I need when we do that self-reflection and we look at that little child, we look at that little girl or whoever our former selves used to be and we say, look at where I am and look at all the things I was able to obtain for myself even without that parent figure. Mm -hmm. And I think when you, again, that helps us to see our strengths. And when we can focus on that, we start to realize that does it replace the grief of not having a parent in your life. Of course it doesn't, but it helps to shift your way of thinking and recognizing I'm still capable even without this person being an active parent in my life. Yes, indeed. I love that. And I'm sure this will touch a lot of people who are listening. I want to shift the conversation a little. Um, I mentioned I really was interested in your work you do and discussing about mental health in the workplace and burnout. Two things that I think because since 2020, a lot of us are working at home, even myself, where I was at the office four days a week in Manhattan Beach and then our office closed. And now most of our, the Tone It Up employees are all over the country. And so we're trying to stay connected. We're Zoom fatigued and all of that, and I see it. So I would love to touch on that because I think so many people, when you're just working at home and silo and not having human connection. It's so important. And I think work from home culture, as well as just the pandemic and how we all had to scatter and isolate and withdraw, showed us the power of community. Um, It's interesting because Dr. Vivek Murphy, the U.S. Surgeon General, shared that we are living in a loneliness pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the studies around loneliness and how loneliness has increased over the last two years are very, very interesting to see. And this loneliness has been sparked specifically from, like I said, people scattering and moving and abandoning community, the community that community that they have had for years. I mean, I'm in New York City. So many people fled New York City, mm-hmm. even though now it's kind of becoming congested again because people are new <laughs> people are moving in. Yeah. A lot of people said like I have to I have to move. Like I, I can't live in this congested area or I have to find uh, a new community. And that can be very hard. And then also we don't realize how much community we get in the workplace, that face-to-face interaction or even being able to inquire about work-related things or manage projects or do all the things that's necessary regarding our work duties and being able to do that in person, you know? So I think when I think about just the loneliness pandemic and I think about burnout, it's so complex. It's very complex. But when I approach the conversation around burnout, I approach it from two different perspectives. I approach it from the lens of what are the things that the company can be doing to enhance workplace well-being But I also put it back on the person. Mm -hmm. And I say, what can you as an employee be doing to enhance personal well-being? Because I think with the conversation around workplace well-being becoming 
more mainstream and becoming more of uh, many corporations are generally focusing now on how they can enhance workplace well-being. When I'm working with companies and I'm working with clients from these companies, I'm realizing that some people are conflating personal with well-being with workplace well-being, and mm-hmm. they are two separate entities. Can they merge and can they coexist? Of course they can. But they are still two separate silos. And so I think that one of the things that I'm always trying to do is, one, help agencies focus on, well, what can we do to enhance that workplace well-being? How can we, one, bring in more trainings around mental health? How can we do more check-ins with our direct reports? How can we do more surveys to really understand the things our employees are going through? Because we are large corporations. We may not know the needs of every single individual, but I also help those individuals understand personal agency and autonomy. So when you're working from home, it's not your boss's responsibility to send you an email and say, hey, make sure you log out at 5 p.m. today because your shift is over. That is your personal responsibility. However, it might be the workplace's responsibility to give you a specific time frame in which you work. So your hours are nine to five. These are our boundaries. These are our workplace boundaries. Your, where our expectation of you is to commit to working from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. But if you decide to keep working, you're on your own. That's your personal agency and your own personal choice. So those are some of the things that I like to reflect on and help companies and individuals reflect on as well when we're talking about burnout in the workplace. Have you, with anyone that you work for in big corporations, have you had experience with employees just not being present if they're nine to five, just not having as much presence lately? Um, and maybe it's, I got, you know, when we were in the office together, uh, you know, everyone was socializing and interacting with human connection and it was, people were more present, but I, I feel, and I'm no expert in this, but I feel like with the pandemic, it's been much harder for people to focus, stay connected. Even my, you know, with my company, with employees all over the country, uh, some people I've never met in person. And so it's just a, it's a new way of working. And I just feel like there's a lot of struggle. Definitely. I think a lot of people still are trying to navigate work-life harmony. Um, And I think people are exhausted by the separation. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, it's interesting when I'm working with a lot of companies, a lot of people said, I was so excited for work for work from home to be a thing. And now that I'm doing it, I'm like, oh my God, I want to be back in the office <laughs> because it's like every day feels the same. And this is the concept of languishing, right? Like mm-hmm. every day feels the same. Every day starts to, starts to feel mundane. And I think what happened for a lot of people is they abandoned a lot of the routines mm-hmm. that were associated with their work life. So, for example, there are a lot of people who would say, you know what, since I, we're going to just use the traditional nine to five model, but I do understand to people who are listening, that may not be your work structure. But you might have people who will say, since I have to be up and I have to be at work for nine, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to wake up in time to make breakfast. I'm going to make sure I'm showered. I'm going to do this whole ritual. You have this whole morning routine and these ritualistic practices that you commit to. And then work from home life came and it's like, all right, I got to start work at nine. I'll just roll out of bed at 845. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't need a shower. I don't need need to shower. (laughs) I don't have to get dressed. 
And we don't realize how a lot of the routines and rituals we were committed to helped us maintain our mental health Mm -hmm. because the brain loves something to look forward to. The brain is always scanning for pleasure and rewards. So when the brain is like, I'm bored, we start to pick up sometimes very negative habits Mm -hmm. where we're now saying, you know what, I'm just going to roll out of bed. I'm just going to do this thing. And the brain is kind of like, no, we need some more satisfaction. We need more stimuli. And I think people are trying to figure out, well, how do I give myself that stimuli? How do I give myself that satisfaction? And they're not realizing that they may need to start incorporating some of those activities that they used to do. No, you're not getting in your car and commuting anymore, but maybe that commute time could be the time that you exercise, the time that you go for a walk, the time that you stretch the time that you do some journaling, the time that you read a book or listen to a podcast, how can you replace it with something that's more self-nourishing? Because again, your brain is like, we need stimuli. Mm -hmm. And boredom shows us that there's a lack of stimulation. And our inability to focus shows us there's a lack of stimulation. And I think one of the things you're talking to is a decrease in our executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. So when I'm hearing people talk about decision fatigue, when I'm hearing people talking about, I have a really hard time managing my impulses. All of those things go back to those are different domains of our executive functioning skills, being able to problem solve, being able to make decisions, being able to manage our impulses. But when we're not giving ourselves positive stimulation, then we're seeing a decrease in our ability to perform. And so I think those are one of the things that I've been really encouraging people to do. And I realize every meeting I attend, I leave my camera off because I'm not even dressed or I'm doing all of these things. It's like, how is that benefiting you? And I also cause them to reflect, right? Give them an opportunity to reflect. Is that actually benefiting you? Do you feel like while working from home, do you feel good about yourself Mm -mm. as you navigate the day? Mm -mm. And it's a very simple question that some people are like, oh, I actually don't feel good about myself. And it's like, well, why is that? What are some changes that you can make on your day-to-day that will help you feel more nourished and feel like you are doing something of value? And I think that, you know, being able to look at our day-to-day routines can help us recognize we need to stimulate ourselves more. And when we do that, when we jump back into having certain routines and rituals and practices, that can boost our mental health. Yeah, and even with myself, I used to be like, a very early riser, but I have trouble getting up before seven now, which I know for some that might seem like late or early, <laughs> but I would be like, 5.30, let's go meditate, read a book, go to the gym, go to yoga, get showered and ready. And I notice my own decline in mental health because of my stimulation and my routine is off. So I want to do this practice. When I get off, I'm going to rewrite my goals for morning routine. And anyone listening to, let's do it together and share it and hashtag the big silence because it's so important. And then keeping accountable because there's less accountability now and share it with someone else, share it on Instagram and hashtag us, whatever it may be, but really just put that work into yourself because I've noticed like I can go like a week and be like, I'm on my A game. And then it's so hard. I mean, even like I mentioned, like I have my own personal trainer now because I'm like, need somebody to keep me accountable. Um, I think it's a really good thing. So if you're listening, grab your journal and write out your goals 
and what mm-hmm. your morning routine is and how to take care of you before you go to the office. Because even if you're working, if you go get outside and walk in nature for 20 minutes, you're energized, you're more creative, and then you can do a better job at your job, be a better partner, better parent, all of that. So it's really important. Very. And you can be a better person for yourself. Yeah. And I think one. always just asking yourself, like, how are my choices bringing me closer to my goals and closer to the person that I want to be? And that can help you. That can help people really self-reflect and say, OK, maybe this particular routine is not helpful for me. And so yeah. maybe I can condense it, shift it around, do something different. But I do think it's really all about our choice and understanding our growth and healing comes from the choices that we make. Yeah. A thousand percent. All right, Mina, anything else that you want to share? I would just say I I, I want to like validate how hard it can be to like commit to things in mm-hmm. this co- current culture and climate, you know, especially like we're two years into this. But I do just want to remind people that like one of the best ways we grow is pushing past discomfort. Because if you have abandoned a routine for two years and now you are, you're listening to this, you're like, all right, I'm going to jump on this with Karina and Mina, and I'm going to like commit to my journaling and I'm going to commit to these new routines. And you find yourself after day three, it's like, oh my God, I want to quit. <laughs> you know, I want to give up and understanding it makes sense that it's hard, but getting through that level of discomfort leads to long-term positive results. Mm-hmm. And when we quit because our comfort zone makes us feel good, And because things are uncomfortable, what we end up with is short-term positive results with long-term consequences. So I just really just want to encourage people around that because I understand it's hard, but we can do hard things. And so commit to it, find an accountability partner if you need to, find a regimen that works for you, make it personal. Don't do someone else's blueprint. Don't copy what you see on social media. Make sure it's specific to you because if it's not, it's not going to feel pleasurable. So that's the last thing I'll add to that. Thank you. And yeah, I always say change is uncomfortable. And for me, my motivation is you did it before you can do it again. (laughs) Yes, I love that. (laughs) I love that. All right. And how you can find Mina, it's all in the show notes. And thank you, Mina, for joining us today. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like subscribe and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love. The type of love that will defeat anxiety. The type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. 
The big silence. Mm-hmm. Breathing.